Hello, it's Anthony Chadwick from the Webinar Vet, welcoming you to another episode of Vet Chat. And we're very fortunate today to have one of my best friends, superstar vets, queen of behavioral medicine. It's Sarah Heath. Thanks for coming on, Sarah. Hi, Anthony. Lovely to see you or hear uh, you. Great to see you and hear you. Although as, as a podcast, this is obviously just a, a, an audio. Um, you know, it's really interesting, Sarah. We, we spend a lot of time together going to the football. One of our passions is Liverpool Football Club. We, whenever this comes out, we'll we'll probably know whether we've won cups or what we've done. But uh, <laughs> it's been an exciting season, hasn't it? It certainly has. It's been a yeah exciting, but also I I know that when we see each other every other Saturday at Anfield, um, we we often say that gosh, this is our hobby, and yet we're here we are having a heart attack. Um, yes. So yeah, I'm not quite sure why we put each, put ourselves through such immense stress as in <laughs> in the name of a hobby. But uh, yeah, it's been it's been a great season. It's been great. I've been to Wembley yeah. already once. About to go to Wembley again on Saturday for the FA Cup final. So oh yeah, it's been it's been great. And uh, and then of course we've got Paris as well. So yeah, it's all it's all good. Um, what's really fascinating was uh, you know finding out perhaps a little bit about your background because. Of course, when you uh, started your behavioural practice, you were really the first vet, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, in the UK, that was doing behavioural medicine. There were obviously behaviourists there who were non-vets, but I think you were really one of the first, if not the first, to set up a behavioural practice, weren't you? Yeah, in terms of a clinical practice in behavioural medicine, I was the first. Daniel Mills uh, was the first person to be um, sort of uh, recognised um, in the profession, but slightly more of an academic background than myself. Although Daniel and I have done a lot of work together over the years, and one of our greatest achievements was the setting up of the International Veterinary Behaviour Meeting, which Daniel and I started in 1997. Um, so yeah, so we've done a lot together, but probably from a clinical in practice, you know, communicating with GP level behavior and behavioral medicine then yeah certainly i was in there at the beginning anthony which basically means i'm old you're not old sarah um, if you're old then i'm old so i'm not allowing that uh, <laughs> sarah just really interesting you know obviously you wanted to be a vet but where did this interest i, I actually think you know it's normal isn't it that we think of animals as having um characters um, you know, they have personalities and so on. But of course, if you go back 30, 40 years, I remember John Webster, I think he was professor at Bristol, wasn't he? Uh, he was he, when I was when I was yeah. there as a student, yeah. And he gave us lectures. He came up to Liverpool and this was really the first welfare unit and that would have been, you know, in the 80s. So going back to, you know, maybe before you went to vet school, did was that something that you already had a feeling for? Had you done stuff? Um, was that just part of who you were or, or had you done stuff perhaps before going to vet school that had had made you become interested in behavioural medicine, perhaps without you realising that you were calling it behavioural medicine or animal yeah, welfare? Yeah, very definitely. Yeah, from, well, from the age of eight, I wanted to be a vet. And then ah. as, as soon as, uh, you know, and absolutely unwavering ever since and, and still, you know, more than 30 years qualified and I still absolutely love the job the profession and would never do anything else um so it's been part of my life 
obviously since since I was eight in, in my head as a, as a concept and what I was going to do. And then, of course, as soon as I could, I, I was looking for, for experience and I worked on dairy farms because I'm a Cheshire girl and um, I wanted to go to vet school to be a dairy vet. And I never even envisaged working with small animals. That, that never entered my head. It was cows, cows, cows. That's, that's really what I cared about. Um, although, obviously, I had um, dogs at home um, and fish. Um, goldfish the old thing that we did in the back in the 70s um and um yeah so i i was had animals and i had a, a also a very passionate interest in wildlife um particularly cheetahs which is where my cat um passion comes from and that to this day back, going back to africa um thankfully this month to so i spend a lot of time there when i can um because of that interest so it's all kind of linked together um, and then I started working on the dairy farm and they had a stockman there called Len, who was unbelievably ahead of his time. But at the age of I don't know, 14, 15, when I started working there, I really had no idea that what Len was telling me wasn't just normal knowledge for everyone, that, that, that everyone thought like he did. Um, so I, I grew up really knowing that cows have feelings, they have emotions, that they're individuals, that he talked about the cows very much as individuals and he would spend a lot of time thinking and debating about why a cow wouldn't use a particular cubicle because you know what was it that upset her about that cubicle? he talked in those sorts of terms of oh she's upset today or she doesn't seem very happy or I'm not sure why she doesn't like that or that sort of terminology really um talking about them as having feelings and then I went to vet school and as you just said John Webster was there and, and talking about welfare and I was sort of listening to this welfare stuff thinking it's it was being presented to us as vet students as very groundbreaking new information new thinking and so the Bramble report around that time all of that was happening and there was a lot of interest in welfare and I was thinking this is what Len's been doing for years and years and years um, and and didn't really realize how new it was particularly to the veterinary profession at that time um and so yeah i continued with my interest in cattle wildlife and then while i was at university got very very interested in cats through um tim griffith jones was there so obviously bristol at that time was the place to be to understand that cats are incredibly important creatures and, and fascinating and obviously and, and not small dogs and not small dogs and my love of cheetahs then became mm. um, translated into a love of um love of domestic cats um yeah and then gradually it kind of expanded from that we had one day of lectures from um roger mugford who at the time of course was a very prominent non-veterinary person working in the field and has contributed a great deal to the understanding in the field as well and he gave a one day of lectures and i'm sitting there thinking oh gosh this applies to small animals as well this is all the same thing this is about them having emotions this is about them you know perceiving the world differently to us and us needing to understand them in their species specific right um so yeah very much comes from a welfare background and large animal originally wildlife and then at vet school realizing gosh this applies to small animals as well and then went into a 70 30 large small veterinary practice for my first job um, very much still large animal orientated at that stage, um, but then started seeing the reality of emotional health in domestic animals that were being presented. And 
I, I have been really fortunate to be surrounded by very forward thinking people in my life. So Len was the first one, then Jim Pinsent, who I think you also remember, um, who was at Bristol, my large animal medicine lecturer, who talked about the art of veterinary science, talked about veterinary science being more than just science and that you need to, he was talking about stockmen and farmers and understanding you know, the whole mm. system, if you like. Yes. But then when I got into general practice, I could see that applied to the caregivers of domestic pets as well, that, that their lives are inextricably entwined with one another. It's um, when I set up the skin vets as my dermatology practice, I, I talked about the art and science of veterinary dermatology, you know, and it's the same, it's the same thing. And I think if you are empathetic with the client, but also with the pets, you you have an understanding of where the pet's going you know is this a pet that's going to suddenly try and launch at you or you know is it a pet that you can give a give a stroke to or whatever and it makes our job a lot easier if we can think in that empathetic way doesn't it absolutely and and I was very fortunate my first job I stayed there for four years until I set up behavior referrals veterinary practice so I set up um, my practice in um, 1992 it's 30 years old this year yeah. Um, and so, um, yeah, I was very fortunate. I worked for for this mixed practice and my boss, um, Peter Waite, was, again, another forward thinking ahead of his time um, there. And I owe a lot to him. Um, and he was already enlisting the services of David Appleby as a behaviorist for his clients. Now, that was really forward thinking. Mm. So he was already having David come in um, to see clients um, who he was referring to him. So on my in those days I had a half day on a Monday um in my clinical work and GP practice and on a Monday afternoon I would um ask David Appleby if I referred a case to him if he would book it for a Monday afternoon and I'd go to the house and see the case with him um and so that David Appleby's another person I owe a lot to um and he really started my interest in how oh, this is a clinical subject this is this mm. is a subject that actually apply, applies to us and welfare and behaviour are so intrinsically linked. If you've got a an unhappy cow, it's probably going to act strangely. It's probably, you know, not going to do as well with things like milk because if it's not in sound mind, it's probably not going to be in sound body either, is it? Yeah, and looking back, obviously at that stage, I was already aware of the health triad, but not going to be calling it that or talking about it in those terms until after I, I established the sink analogy of emotional health in about 2010 and then started expanding from that into really considering the health triad and this idea that you have physical emotional and cognitive health in all animals whether they're human animals or non-human animals um, and that that is really important for veterinary surgeons to consider health care is not just physical it's physical emotional and cognitive and they all interplay with one another because really until really recently we were asking questions like is it medical or is it behavioral and the question that's not the right question um because it's both um if we mean by medical health physical health well then it's physical and emotional and cognitive because healthcare is a triad and they're all interlinked with each other and healthcare is what we as veterinary surgeons are charged with looking after in terms of non-human animals that that's our domain to to care for the health, which is all three aspects of non-human species. I remember probably one of the first times we met was at a dermatology conference where you were speaking about behavior and it was very much, 
you know, because we had this feline endocrine alopecia condition, which was, of course, didn't exist or is incredibly rare if it does exist. Um, of course, a lot of the time that was just cats that were licking themselves because they, you know, weren't happy. Okay, they may have a flea allergy as well, but... Or cystitis, as we yeah, know. Exactly, yeah. but just controlling their cystitis or, 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 you know, their flea allergy wasn't enough. You had to enrich environments as well. That's fascinating. So, or at least op optimize environments. And just, I, I know yeah. those people who hear me talk know that I'm a bit of a stickler for language. Um, that comes from my dear dad, who's another influential person in my life, um, who, who passed away sadly um, a long time ago now. But um, he was a stickler for English and grammar. And yes. I learned that I learned a love of language from him. But it has really served me well in that in my work, I'm very particular about words um just because i think it's really important not to underestimate how it how the value of describing something with a word that enables people to understand what you're talking mm. about so people who know the sync model will know that i use the word repulsion not fight and not aggression um as in repulsion meaning you're trying to make something go away and then talk about confrontation, which isn't necessarily repulsive. So confrontation can look very similar, but if it doesn't have the aim of getting something to go away, then it's not actually repulsion. It, it's a confrontational response. And that's often associated with the emotion of frustration, for example. But the reason I just talked about words then is because you said environmental enrichment. And I think it's very important that we also are careful about how we describe environments, because I think there are three things we do to environments. One is what I term environmental optimization, which is creating an environment that, that supplies the needs of the species. And that's not optional. That is something that has to be done. Um, that, like you know, giving something to a pig to root in is not enrichment. It's an optimization. They, it's not an added extra that would be nice to have. It's something they absolutely need. So what we're looking at in optimization is what does the species need? So the cat has five pillars of environmental needs, according to the AFPISM guidelines, which are excellent. And so that is optimization if you're providing those. Enrichment for me is adding in extra, adding in the, the stuff that would be nice to have, but actually your life would still be OK if you didn't have it. Um, so I, I think there's a big difference between enrichment and optimization. And then the other one is modification. So sometimes if you've got an animal that's lame or an animal that's got OA, you might need to modify the environment. So you put in a ramp or mm, steps, yeah. which is neither enrichment nor optimization, but it is modification and it's necessary. So I talk about environmental change in those three ways. You either optimize it, which you should do for every single animal mm. of any species, and then you can enrich it, which is adding stuff which is nice to have. Um, but you could be having an optimal life without it, but you're just adding more of that. And then modification, if you need it to modify it for a specific reason. So is LFC enrichment or optimization? <laughs> it's probably enrichment because yes. I could I could live my life without yes. it. Yes. Um, but I would find it very difficult to do so. Yeah, I mean, this is all very interesting because at the moment I'm I'm uh, enjoying Sean Wensley's book through a vet's eyes, ah. which talks a lot about, you know, how pigs are kept, um, you know, from just bare cages and and sow farrows into you know 
outdoors in 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 very enriched environments where they're able to exhibit some of those natural things that they do in the wild like you know uh, grub around in in the um in in the the soil for yeah you know for things as well and you can't do that if you're on a bird cage can you no sean's a liverpool graduate i taught him behavioral medicine when he was at um liverpool and he's he's an amazing guy um another forward-thinking individual who's contributed a great deal to animal welfare so yeah um the book's great and um well done sean that it's a great um addition to the to the library well worth a read but hopefully we'll we'll get to talk to sean at some point so do come in and listen to that one as well do you want to join the largest online veterinary community in the world? The Webinar Vets membership is the perfect tool to complete your veterinary CPD with ease anytime, any place, on any connected device. Become a member today and explore our library of over 2,000 premium quality veterinary webinars. You can also track your CPD and log your activity with the One CPD app or download your certificates. To find out more, visit thewebinarvet.com forward slash memberships. I always think the problem, I go to the AWF most years, I think it was last week, I didn't go, but most years I go to it down in London. Mm-hmm. And is there a danger? I remember reading a paper, I think it was in the vet record, that said veterinary surgeons don't know much more than ordinary members of the public which i was shocked about but of course when you go to something like the awf you know it it's in a fairly small auditorium there aren't huge numbers of people clamoring to get through the door uh, it's it's something you know at webinar vet obviously working you know with you and others we, we've seen it as being a very important part of of what we do as gp vets how can we become better vets and to me part of that is is understanding the importance of welfare and behaviour. Um, you know, is what are your thoughts about that paper? If you remember it, and do you think it's a bit unfair, or do you think it's a it's a fair judgment that we perhaps don't do as much as we should, either, you know, through our through our period at university, but perhaps also afterwards, do we take it as seriously as we should as vets and and perhaps as nurses as well? I think we definitely you can can do better. Um, I do think it's improved. I mean, when I, you know, 30 odd years ago was 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 starting to talk about behavioural medicine, I think the profession would like to have put me in a straitjacket and a padded cell. Um, you know, it's that sort of, what on earth are you talking about? And also very much a feeling that that's not what vets do. That's what non-vets do. And it's like, no, this is behavioural medicine. This is, this is what vets do. And we need the input of people who are looking at it from a cognitive point of view as well. Um, so it's very important that we have um, behavioural work is multidisciplinary, but behavioural medicine is a veterinary discipline. And so, and but they work together or they should work together, complementing one another. And sadly, we have seen quite a lot of vet bashing from the non-vet behaviour world at times. And we have also seen vets who have not given enough credibility to behavior as well so it's happened from both sides unfortunately um but i think it has got a lot better i do think um the uk actually has been one of the best countries for recognizing the multidisciplinary approach 
um, and involving vets and non-vets in a harmonious way. It's one of, one of the best, and I'm proud of that. It's one of the best countries for that, not to be so much of a divide. And it's that's not what's good for the for the animals. So if we think about human health care, it's multidisciplinary. You know, and when you think about cognitive, emotional and physical health, you could think about a child needs a doctor, a child needs a teacher, and a child may at times need a psychologist. But all of those need to communicate. And that's probably mm. one of the reasons we've got a mental health crisis in humans, that, that lack of communication. And we shouldn't kid ourselves that we're not on the verge of an emotional health crisis in domestic pets as well. Um, and, and we need to be in, you know, in the mix of this, as the BVA so nicely call it, but I really like this term, the vet-led team. So mm. yes, that should be leading this because these are non-verbal and not non-communicative, but they're not telling us in human language how they feel. And so we need to have vets at the forefront um, in order to safeguard welfare. Uh, but we do need a multidisciplinary approach. And the other thing is education of vets. You know, CPD, and thank you to the webinar vet, you've done a great deal for improving education to the veterinary profession. And you have included a lot about not only behavioral medicine but also human wellness as well and about the whole you know this one health concept and the one welfare concept and you've been great at, at promoting that um so thank you to webinar vet and to you anthony for that but what we also need to do is make sure there is undergraduate education as well as postgraduate supplies of cpd because we need to have a whole mindset of thinking in terms of the health triad from the beginning and even those vets who are not going to go and specialize in behavioral medicine of course not everyone's going to do that it's a it's a specialist niche but there's also general practice behavioral medicine which is every single day do i neuter this dog is this dog emotionally stable enough for me to castrate it should i um, think about giving emotional support to this cancer patient because of the emotional impact of this treatment should I give pre-veterinary visit medication to this very anxious dog in order to not get too much negative impact from that veterinary visit? This is behavioral medicine at GP level. And if we don't teach undergraduate vets about this, they won't have that mindset. Now, Liverpool University, I've been there for a very long time supplying education there. And um, we have traditionally done third year lectures and, and then we've done um, handling in first year where we've spoken about emotional benefits of, of understanding emotion for handling then third year lectures and then final year we've done rotations um, so small groups just four or five people in a clinical context really trying to get that mindset and I see a massive difference in the Liverpool graduates in that way and I hear that from my GP colleagues that, that they have thought differently because they've had this really small group individual mm -hmm. i've known every vet student um and then seen them at, at london vet show last year just in november so lovely they come up to you and it's like you taught me behavioral medicine it's really so helpful when i've been in general practice mm. now sadly that has been stopped in 2022 and it won't be small group um clinical teaching of behavioral medicine anymore and i think that's really really sad um they are going to do more clinical 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 scenario based teaching with me in fourth year but it's in a group of 70 students and that's mm. not the same and, and it won't get that that individual interest i i fear will not will not be there 
but Liverpool have done a great deal more than some other universities. Um, and so what we need to be doing is making sure that we have a more standardised approach, that behavioural medicine is a discipline of veterinary medicine just like any other. So it's, it's as important as any other discipline. Now, we know that disciplines are not given equal time in the curriculum. Of course, they're not. So I'm not for a minute suggesting that behavioural medicine would get equal time to some other disciplines which are, you know, the majority of, of have more hours in the curriculum. And I, that's, of course, that's right. But that it should be a discipline which is recognised and must mm. be part of the undergraduate curriculum and must be taught in a clinical sense. So as part of clinical teaching, clinical rotations, not just in theory, not just in lectures, but in, in a GP relevant way, so that when you go into general practice as a new graduate, you're thinking about healthcare yeah. in terms of the triad of health, emotional, physical and cognitive. No, I think it's really important. I mean, it is obviously I'm not as au fait with what's going on at all the universities, you know, but 20 years ago, there was very little taught on exotics and dentistry. And I, I think Absolutely. some of those areas are still not concentrated on. And yet dentistry, you know, is a huge area. And of course, if you've got a bad tooth, then you're probably going to be a bit grumpy about it, aren't you? And not wanting to be handled and things. Pain is so important in changes in behavioural output and dental or oral pain, oral health is so important. Um, and I agree with you. It's another discipline that, that thankfully is now recognised as a veterinary discipline, I think, but isn't given as much time, as much devoted time, and certainly not in a clinical context. So again, this idea that it, it's got to be at that clinical stage of teaching um, where it's real sort of, you know, day yeah. one GP practice skills. I think the danger, and I think, you know, I'm sure universities recognise this, that given what they see at universities, they can turn out people who know how to do a hip replacement, but, you know, perhaps haven't seen many bitch bays. And so that that is the quandary, isn't it? Because in the end, most of us, you know, like myself, will be GPs maybe with a special interest, but, you know, we won't be specialists like like yourself or, or others. So we need to make sure that at the university level, we're being taught at the GP level, which then once you've qualified, you can go on to do other qualifications to go to that higher level in orthopedics, behavior, or whatever you want to do. And it's interesting because um, I, I I am not a general practitioner. I haven't been for, for many years, but you can't take the GP out of me. Um, I, I am so much a clinician at heart mm. and I miss general practice. I didn't become a specialist because I didn't like general practice. I became a specialist because I didn't have time to do general practice and I locumed um, alongside my specialism until twenty until the year 2000. Um, and so I, because I didn't want to let go of general yeah. practice because I really loved it. It wasn't that I didn't like it um, at all. And, and I think my passion is to make sure that behavioural medicine is seen as, yes, a specialism. And of course, I you know, train residents. I'm very involved in the college. I totally believe it's a, it's a specialism, but also that it's a general practice skill yeah. um, and that to try and make behavioural medicine more accessible and better serviced within general practice is something that, that yeah, I definitely feel passionate about. And I'll do that through, through CPD to, to qualified vets, but I, I do think we need to be putting it into the undergraduate curriculum and as when you just said then about GP skills I think we 
sometimes bash the Royal College, um, but the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons actually has done something really great recently, which is to say to universities that 70% of their teaching must be relevant to general practice. Mm. Now that is brilliant. Thank you, Royal College, because that will help, um, hopefully, to, to, to make the university um, level of education think about how relevant is this to general practice? Because if 70% of their teaching has to be relevant to general practice, that's brilliant. And, and that hopefully will have an effect on teaching and mean that you know people have to include dentistry and behavioral medicine and, and things that are really relevant to your day one skills, what you're gonna, someone's gonna ask you on your first day in practice, probably they're gonna ask you about something to do with the behavioral um, change in their animal and something to do with their teeth and their oral health. Um, yes, it's quite likely that that will happen. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, as you said, even when you are approached with a case, often there are several elements to it. So you're not doing a behavioral consult, but it's all it's all part of it. And, you know, as a vet, um, if we're not aware of that component, then it will be very difficult for us to be great at the job because we'll also be involved in situations that we don't know how to deal with the pet because the pet is in, you know, in fear or, or whatever. Um, and so it's then really important if we have those skills, we can, you know, handle situations better, can't we? Yeah. And so another another thank you um, is to ISFM, um, who through international, you know, cat care, um, they've worked so hard to improve the 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 perception of cats as as having this um, emotional side to their health as well. And the cat friendly practice scheme is something I'm sure that the profession is very, very aware of. It's 10 years old this year. So it's their 10 year anniversary. And what an excellent scheme. And, and thank you again, that fantastic charity, iCat Care. But I've said for many years that we need iDog Care. And I don't know if anyone listening wants to set that up. I don't have capital, so I wouldn't be able to do it. But um, you know, if someone did have capital to start a charity, iDog Care is desperately needed. Um, to be modelled on iCat Care, to be the sister charity of iCat Care and look after the welfare of dogs because it's sadly not being looked after in the same way. When I was at vet school, uh, cat welfare, Tim Griffith-Jones, I've mentioned before, and others like him who really championed the cat as a species in its own right and made amazing changes. And, and, and since that time, the cat has almost overtaken the dog as being looked after according to its species specific needs and the dog has almost got left behind now good news is that the british veterinary behavior association um, have teamed up with dogs trust and in june at the bva live um, meeting um, in birmingham they're going to be launching the dog friendly practice scheme uh, at last I've waited many many years for this to happen under the umbrella and care of an organization not some money-making scheme for an individual but this is um done on the same basis as i cat care does cat friendly practice so done through an organization you know in a very different way to some other schemes that are available um and so dog friendly practice i think you know it's so exciting that 2022 is the year of the launch of dog friendly practice and let's hope in 10 years time we can be talking about how that scheme has transformed dog life in the same way that 10 years on from i from the cat friendly practice scheme being launched we're talking about the differences in in the veterinary approach to cats 
Um, so yeah, mm. the, the exciting times and so many people involved in contributing to all of this. I've mentioned quite a few today, but you know, so many people that I personally am indebted to, like like Len and Peter Waite and Jim Pinsent and and people from my early career and David Appleby, but also the profession has so many people to thank, people who were forward thinking, Professor Webster we've talked about, ICAT Care, uh, BVBA, Dogs Trust, all these people who've done so much to improve the fact we're even talking about this. You know, 30 years yeah. ago, or 30 plus plus years ago, when I qualified, we weren't talking about this, not openly. There were a few of us talking about it, a few of us knocking on the door, but this is now, a, you know, you're doing mm. a podcast about it we have we have moved a long way we've got a long way to go but mm. we have made moves in the right direction well and sarah obviously you've spent a lot of time thanking other people you know also thank you for all that you've done because i know as a gp uh, i'll often you know ask you questions and obviously listen to the webinars that we've done together and think mm, right i need to do things a bit differently and i think that's uh, you know for for us webinar vet if if somebody comes on a webinar and it makes them change one little aspect of their veterinary practice which they then you know take on board that hour of cpd is a really worthwhile hour of cpd and i always get that when i speak to you as i have done today so thank you so much oh thank you thanks for the opportunity thanks sarah